0: good morning and welcome to the 2021 first quarter earnings conference call hosted by bny mellon at this time all participants are in a listen only mode later we will conduct a question and answer session please note that this conference call and webcast will be recorded and will consist of copyrighted material you may not record or rebroadcast these materials without BNY Mellon's consent. I will now turn the call over to Magdalena Polchenska, BNY Mellon Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Good morning.
1: Welcome to BNY Mellon's first quarter 2021 earnings conference call. Today, we will reference our financial highlights presentation available on the Investor Relations page of our website at bnymellon.com. Todd Gibbons. Bny and CEO will leave the call. Then, Emily Courtney, our CFO, will take you through our earnings presentation. Following Emily's prepared remarks, there will be a Q&A session. Before we begin, please note that our remarks include forward-looking statements and non-GAAP measures. Information about these statements and non-GAAP measures are available in the earnings press release, financial supplement, and financial highlights presentation all available on the investor relations page of our website. Forward looking statements made on this call speak only as of today, april sixteenth, twenty twenty one, and will not be updated. With that, I will hand over to Paul.
2: Thank you, Magda, and good morning, everyone. I will touch on a few financial performance highlights and some other business developments and hand it over to Emily to review the results in more detail. But first I wanted to spend a minute discussing the environment in which we're all operating. You know, as I reflect on the past year, the word that keeps coming to mind for me is resilience. the Resilience of our business model, our global financial infrastructure, and of course our clients and our employees. Indeed, we saw the resilience of the financial system itself due to the lessons learned from the previous financial crisis and to the quick and decisive action from the government and regulators and now we're moving from a period of resilience to a period that we are all optimistic will be one of recovery and growth. While we all remain clear-eyed about the challenges that still exist, I am one of many business leaders who see many reasons to be positive in the period ahead when we move past the COVID cloud. The optimism stems from the confluence of several factors including the deployment of the vaccine, potential strength from consumers, Now, in the U.S., households have been saving at extraordinary levels. Currently, the savings rate is running about 14%, and that's more than twice the 30-year average. The amount held in cash in households and available for spending is around 15% of GDP, which is way above normal times. In addition, monetary stimulus and further U.S. government spending plans are likely to accelerate GDP growth. So we expect significant GDP GDP growth going forward, assuming the pandemic is managed as expected. The strong economy is likely to keep activity and asset levels high, and expectations for stronger growth is beginning to be reflected in the steepening growth. Now, I also wanted to touch on the future of work and general productivity. The pandemic has driven remarkable levels of innovation and technology adoption, and companies have now become accustomed to a new way of working. We've proven our ability to maintain high-quality service for our clients, adopt and deploy new technologies quickly, and collaborate with one another virtually over this past year. We're going to take the best of what we've learned to continue to innovate and drive enhanced value for our clients and our employees, including assessing what our workforce and workplaces will look like. We intend to embrace hybrid working arrangements, and define a future of work that continues to position us as an employer of choice, in our industry. Now with that, let me turn to some highlights on our performance, where we see momentum across our businesses. Starting on slide two, we reported revenue of 3.9 billion. Fee revenue, excluding the impact of money market fee waivers, increased 6% year over year, against a prior year quarter that had exceptional pandemic-related volume and volatility. Asset servicing and pur- purging particularly benefited from positive client activity as well as market appreciation. Operating margin of 29% is relatively flat year-over-year, year, not bad considering the significant lost interest rate revenue. We had a credit provision release of $83 million. EPS of 97 cents was down 8 cents from last year, and return on t- tangible common equity of 16%. Turning to our businesses now, the strength in asset servicing revenue reflects higher markets robust client volumes, and continued new business momentum. Our open architecture strategy and platforms continue to gain traction with clients, powered by our data and analytics solutions. In the first quarter, a large global asset manager in acquisition mode signed a multi-year agreement for Data Vault. as our cloud-based platform. The Vault allows our clients to integrate acquisitions quickly and easily interact with data to gain actionable insights to help drive their business decisions. We are proud to have been selected by Gadelli Funds to launch its new actively managed ETF, and that's an ESG-themed product, and to have been named the ETF service provider for First Trust Skybridge's Bitcoin ETF Trust. During the first quarter, our ETF servicing platform launched a record 51 fund, and our ETF asset under custody or administration has now surpassed $1 trillion. We recently also announced the establishment of a new digital assets unit, which is building a multi-asset platform that will allow us to custody traditional as well as digital assets, including cryptocurrencies in an integrated way. The growing client demand for digital assets and improved regulatory clarity presents an opportunity for us to extend our current service offerings over time to this emerging field. Moving to cursing and clearing and collateral management, Purging benefited from continued elevated transaction volumes, equity market strength, and strong underlying fundamentals. As I mentioned last quarter, we did lose a couple of clients due to consolidation and this together with the low rate environment will impact Pershing in 2021 and mask the underlying good organic fee growth. In clearing and collateral management, clearing fees remain strong. and We expect healthy activity going forward. In collateral management, international fees were buoyant to new business rates. In addition, as we announced earlier this week, we now accept Chinese bonds as collateral on our tripartite platform through Hong Kong uh, Bond Connect. With the Chinese fixed income market only expected to grow, demand has been mounting for such a solution, which until now has not existed. This is another example of BNY Mellon's continued innovation to drive value for our clients. Now turning to investment in uh, wealth management, We recently announced the realignment of Mellon's capabilities in fixed income, equity, and multi-asset liquidity management with Insight, Newton, and Dreyfus Cash, respectively. This will enhance the scale and capabilities of our specialist firms and strengthen their research platforms, operations, as well as global reach. We've had a year of consistent quarterly long-term inflows and investment performance across our top strategies continues to be strong. In wealth management, higher markets help to drive client assets to a record level of almost $300 billion. We've implemented many positive changes in this business, including new sales teams, a broader investment and banking offering, and new digital paid capabilities for clients. We were gratified by very high satisfaction scores in our year-end client survey with all survey categories up year over year. Now our proprietary goals-based planning tool, Advice Path, was recently named the CIO 100 award, award winner. This award recognizes 100 technology teams across industries industry that are driving growth through digital transformation. So a lot has been happening to build momentum for growth with existing and new clients. Moving beyond financial performance, I want to spend a minute on ESG something that is top of mind for our investors, employees, and our clients. We are committed to ensuring that we use our reach, market influence, and resources to address pressing ESG issues. Our goals include offering our clients leading analytical solutions, empowering ESG investors with new investment strategies, and encouraging and enabling ESG financing. Last month, we published our first report on how we're managing the impacts of climate change on our business, prepared in accordance with the task force for climate-related financial disclosures, or TCFD guidelines. I encourage you to read it as it includes examples of where we are, uh, where we have initiatives in place related to climate risks and opportunities, and lays out multi-year metrics and targets, including plans to enhance disclosures around how we're doing our part to help the environment. Now, let me close with where I opened. The year started with continued extraordinary efforts by the U.S. government and Federal Reserve to address the economic fallout of the pandemic through fiscal and monetary stimulus. Much uncertainty remains, but equity markets have been generally uh, optimistic, although somewhat volatile, and longer-term treasury yields have steepened. But the amount of liquidity in the system and inflows into money market funds have driven short-term rates lower, in some cases even negative. So there are many positive factors that support our business model, but short-term rates continue to be a challenge. Our business has proven to be resilient and we're well poised for organic growth. Moreover, we continue to bring innovative solutions to the market to help our clients and help them grow. With that, I'll hand it over to Emily to review our results in more detail.
3: Thank you, Todd, and good morning, everyone. I will walk you through the details of our results for the quarter all comparisons will be on a year-over-year basis unless I specify otherwise. Beginning on page three of the financial highlights document. In the first quarter of 2021, we reported revenue of 3.9 billion and EPS of 97 cents. This includes the impact of the reserve release of about 8 cents per share, partially offset by a 39 million renewable energy investment impairment of about 4 cents per share. Revenue was down 5%, and ETS was down 8%. As expected, results were negatively impacted by continued low interest rates and associated money market fee waivers and the absence of share repurchase activity for most of 2020. Fee revenue excluding fee waivers grew 6%, driven by market levels, good organic growth, and the positive impact of a, of a weaker U.S. dollar. While client activity was down slightly versus the exceptional COVID-driven volumes and balances experienced a year ago, it was stronger than we had anticipated. As a reminder, last quarter, we got to about 1.5% organic growth for the year. And this quarter, organic growth was greater than 2%. Beginning this quarter, we reclassified a few revenue line items, which drives cleaner and simpler reporting. Basically, we took investment and other income out of our fee revenue and created a new reporting line which includes investment and other income as well as other trading, variable interest entities, and securities gains and losses. The reclassifications had no impact on total revenue, and the details can be found on page 19 and 20 of the financial supplement. Prior periods have also been reclassified. Foreign exchange revenue had a strong quarter of 24% versus the fourth quarter, primarily on the back of high volumes, and was 6% lower versus an exceptional prior year. Net interest revenue was down 20%. Expenses increased 5% year over year, which is a bit higher than prior guidance due to higher revenue-related expenses, higher litigation costs, and the appreciation of our stock price associated with equity awards. As previously disclosed, first quarter of 2020 also benefited from an accrual adjustment that was not repeated in 2021. Provision for credit losses was a release of 83 million, primarily reflecting an improved macro outlook and CRE price index. We had net recoveries of one million and our portfolio remains high quality with approximately 85% of loans rated investment grade at March 31st. Pre-tax margin of 29% was relatively flat to last year, which is a strong outcome considering the impact of the low interest rate environment on fee waivers and NIR, both of which have the minimum expenses associated with them. ROE was 8.5% and ROTC was 16.1%. Page four sets out a trend analysis of the main drivers of the quarterly results and is adjusted from notable items of the fourth quarter of 2020 were indicated. Investment services revenue was 3 billion, down 8% year on year. The decline was primarily a result of lower net interest revenue, fee waivers, and lower FX revenue. These headwinds max benefits from higher client volumes, liquidity balances, market levels, and a weaker US dollar. Investment services fee and other revenue, X waivers was up 2%. Investment and wealth management revenue increased 10% as higher market value. Modest equity investment gains compared to losses a year ago, and a weaker US dollar offset the impact from fee waivers. Money market fee waivers, net of distribution and servicing expense, were $188 million and a quarter, compared to the $175 million guidance that we've provided previously the higher than expected waivers were driven by higher balances. Turning to page five, our capital and liquidity ratios remain strong and well above internal targets and regulatory minimum. Common equity tier one capital totaled about 21.1 billion as of March 31st and our CET1 ratio was 12.6% under both the advanced and standardized approaches. Tier 1 leverage was 5.8 percent, down 50 basis points from the fourth quarter, primarily due to high deposits. We continue to monitor the impact of liquidity in the system on our balance sheet. We will continue to support our clients' cash management needs while at the same time managing our Tier 1 leverage ratio, which is our binding constraint. Over the last year, excess deposits have grown substantially. Taking the unprecedented environment into consideration, we're comfortable utilizing a portion of our internal buffer that we maintain for the tier one leverage ratio and therefore could go below 5.5% for a period of time. Finally, our LCR was flat compared to the fourth quarter at 110%. In terms of shareholder capital returns, we purchased 699 million of common stock in the first quarter in line with the Federal Reserve's modified limitations that apply to all CCAR banks and continue to pay our 31 cent quarterly dividend, which totaled 277 million this past quarter. Turning to page six, my comments on that interest revenue will highlight sequential changes. Q1 net interest revenue was down 3.7%, with about two-thirds of the decline driven by the impact of lower interest rates, and the other one-third driven by other items such as day count and hedging activity. As a reminder, although average deposits increased again this quarter, they had minimal NIR value in the current low low short-term rate environment. Turning to page seven, which summarizes deposits and securities trends. As mentioned, deposit balances continued to grow and on average were up 21 billion or 7% from the fourth quarter and up 70 billion or 27% from a year ago. As was the case in the fourth quarter, again in Q1, a larger driver of the growth was excess liquidity in the system driven by monetary and fiscal stimulus. Turning to the securities portfolio, On average, the portfolio was flat to the fourth quarter and up approximately 26 billion or 20% over the prior year. Within the securities portfolio, we do continue to invest in non-HQLA securities, primarily in non-agency, MBS, munis, and investment grade corporate bonds, as we look to improve yields while maintaining our conservative risk profile. We also continue to grow the loan portfolio opportunistically such as in 40-act lending and other margin lending, as well as capital call financing. Page eight provides an overview on expenses which we largely covered earlier. Turning to page nine, as mentioned earlier, total investment services revenue year-on-year declined by 8% due to the impact of low interest rates on NIR and fee waivers and lower FX compared to the strong year-ago quarter. NIR was down 20%. Fee and other revenue X waivers was up 2%. FX Revenue and Investment Services had a strong quarter, up 18% from the fourth quarter and down 15% year over year as higher client volumes partially offset normalization of spreads and volatility. Assets under custody and or administration increased 18% year over year to 41.7 trillion on the back of higher market values and client inflows, the favorable impact of a weaker US dollar, and net new business. As I move to the business line discussion, I'm going to focus my comments on fees. Asset servicing fees were up slightly, excluding fee waivers, primarily reflecting higher client activity and higher market levels, partially offset by lower FX revenue through a comparably high period last year. The pipeline remains strong, and win-loss ratios continue to improve. Pershing had another strong quarter despite the impact of fee waivers. While fees were down, they would have been up excluding fee waivers. Year over year, clearing accounts were up 5%. Mutual fund assets were up 24%, and we saw continued strong net new asset flows of $28 in the quarter. Transactional activity remains robust with average daily clearing revenue up about 30% from the fourth quarter. Although we do do expect this to normalize as we move through 2021. Issuer services fees decreased mostly driven by fee waivers and COVID related dividend fee impact in DR. Treasury services fees were up modestly at waivers on the back of higher payment volumes and higher money market fund balances and a continued shift to higher margin products. Clearance and collateral management fees were down slightly, primarily due to elevated volumes in the year ago quarter. Continued organic growth in our non-US business where tri-party balances and clearing fees increased was offset by slight declines in US volumes and lower intraday financing fees. Page 10 summarizes the key drivers that affect the year-over-year revenue comparisons for each of our investment services businesses. Turning to investments and wealth management on page 11. As noted earlier, total investment and wealth management revenue in the quarter increased 10%. Overall assets under management held steady compared to the fourth quarter's record 2.2 trillion and were up 23% year-over-year Primarily due to higher market values, the positive impact of a weaker US dollar, and net inflows. Investment management revenue grew 13%, despite over 700 basis points negative impact from fee waivers, as the benefit of higher market levels, equity investment gains in the current quarter compared to losses a year ago, and a weaker dollar more than offset lower performance fees against a strong year ago quarter. In the first quarter, we had net inflows of 36 billion, including our fourth straight quarter of long-term inflows of 17 billion, driven by strong inflows in LDI and fixed income, as well as index funds. Investment performance remains strong with more than 80% of our top 30 strategies having peer rankings ranked in the top two quartiles on a three-year basis, up from 73% a year ago. Wealth management revenues were up 5% on the back of higher markets. Client assets grew to a record $292 billion and were up 24% year-over-year, year, primarily due to high market values and inflows. Non-mortgage loans and client deposits are also up. Now turning to the other segment on page 12. The year-over-year revenue comparison was primarily impacted by the impairment of one renewable energy investment as noted earlier. The expense increase primarily reflected incentive cost comp- accrual reversals in the year-ago quarter. A few comments about the outlook. As we think about the balance of 2021, for NIR, our full-year guidance remains unchanged. This implies NIR on a four-year basis will be down around 11 to 12% compared to 2020. With regard to waivers, using the forward curve to project just like we do for NIR, we expect waivers' net of distribution and servicing expense to be around 220 million for the second quarter. This will have a modest negative impact to revenues of approximately 20 million due to lower rates partially offset by higher balances. So for the second half of the year, we do expect to be more in line with the first quarter. With regards to these X waivers, the growth rate in the first quarter was significantly higher than previous full year guidance due to higher volumes, but so we expect those volumes to moderate going forward. Regarding expenses, we previously guided to be up about 1.5 percent, excluding notable items. Given the higher expenses this quarter, we now expect them to be up about 2%. As a reminder, on a constant currency basis, we guided that we would be flat year on year, and that will now be up about 50 basis points. Finally, in terms of our effective tax rate, we still expect it to be approximately 19% for 2021. However, we are monitoring the latest federal tax proposals closely. In terms of shareholder capital return, we will continue to pay our quarterly dividends and will once again make open market share repurch- repurchases in compliance with the Federal Reserve's modified limitations, which will allow us to repurchase approximately 600 million of common stock in the second quarter. Looking beyond the second quarter, the Federal Reserve's latest communication to car banks indicated that they will likely implement the sdb framework for capital management in the third quarter. So we are following that guidance closely. And we look forward to receiving the results of this year's stress test and operating under the stress capital buffer framework, which will allow for more flexibility and should mean that we can return more than 100% of earnings to shareholders starting in the third quarter. With that, operator, can you please open up the line for questions?
0: Of course. Thank you. And if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Again, it is star one, if you would like to ask a question. And our first question comes from the line up. Brennan Hawkins with UBS. Please go ahead.
4: Uh, good morning. Thanks for taking my question. I um, was hoping to ask, actually, um, Emily, about some of those comments on capital and Fed um, uh, returning to the SEC approach, which allows for capital returns. Uh, the, the, the Tier 1 leverage ratio is now inside your um, your guided band uh, with the buffer of 5.5 to 6, I believe. Um, you all have referenced that you have some levers to pull, um, which might help on that front. Um, so could you maybe walk us through some of uh, those dynamics? And then also, how, how rigid is that um, buffer that you've, Applied, Um, it seems to be a bit above peers, and so would you or or are you in a position where you could allow uh, yourselves to go underneath that buffer for a period of time? um, uh, You know, given the unusual growth in deposits in the system. Sure. Um, uh, Thanks for the question. So um, we are,
3: you know, we are. very managing our deposits very closely. Um, having said that, uh, you know, we will absolutely continue to support our clients with our balance sheet and, uh, we're, we're comfortable with where deposits are now. Uh, but of course it goes without saying that, you know, over the course of the last 12 months, uh, there have been, you know, a, a lot of additional, uh, reserves in the system, liquidity in the system. Uh, and so we've seen a surge in those deposits. A large portion of that surge is excess, so it's non-operational. Uh, we've been very successfully working with our clients to, uh, to basically explore and move some of those non-operational deposits to off-balance sheet, uh, vehicles. Uh, you know, thankfully we, we, we have a, a good platform in Liquidity Direct that, uh, has lots of, lots of alternatives. It's an open platform. Uh, so that has been, you know, very, uh, very effective. Uh, you are correct in, in, uh, in pointing out, as I did, uh, as I did mention in my, my, um, prepared remarks that, you know, given the unprecedented liquidity in the system, we would feel comfortable dipping into our, uh, tier one leverage, uh, buffer. We do hold a very significant buffer in excess of 150 basis points over reg minimums uh we size that very carefully. It's, it's basically to both absorb uh any uh, any impact to OCI uh given rate changes as well as uh also the you know any surge in imbalances. And given that's really what we've seen and the buffer is really there for this particular kind of unprecedented environment, uh ultimately we would feel comfortable dipping below the the you know five and a half percent for a period of time. Of course running uh certainly a, a above the regulatory minimum.
4: Okay. That, that helps. and That's, that's, a, that's a great to hear. And then one other question on the balance sheet. I, it seemed as though the interest earning asset growth um, lagged deposit growth this quarter on an average basis, right, just looking at the actual balance sheet. Um, was that um, because some of those deposits may be um, temporary? Maybe you all were in the process of of uh, encouraging some folks to consider off-balance sheet um, options, like you referenced, and therefore, you know, the, um, when we gauge balance sheet growth here this quarter, we should more pay attention. Which one should we pay attention to more? Which one is more indicative? Is it the, the, inter, uh, the interest earning asset growth, or is it deposit growth, and um, or, or is it just that, that you'll be putting more money to work, and therefore the interest earning asset growth will, will catch up? I just wasn't. It seemed a big gap, so I wasn't sure. About yeah
3: um I mean sure uh so certainly um and I think I just mentioned so you know a significant portion of the deposit growth that we've seen uh we, you know we do think is is excess and so non operational, so uh it's very hard to really redeploy that into the securities portfolio or the loan portfolio for any real duration. So, um, you know, so as a result, a lot of that is just sitting at the Fed, earning, you know, 10, 10, uh, 10 basis points, which, which obviously is dilutive to to NIM, but of course, you know, it is overall accretive to to NIR, just, you know, obviously, you know, marginally. So, uh, so, you know, when we think about just NIR in in general, um, we really just use the forward curve to to project, uh, and and despite, of course, the, the steepening of the long end of the curve, we did see the short end grind, you know, grind lower. Uh, and also the duration of the curve where we invest is, is more in the two to five year mark and, uh, that didn't go up as much as, as, as the long end. Uh, but of course, you know, to the extent the curve does continue to steepen and, uh, and or shift upwards, that will be extraordinarily helpful.
4: Thanks for the caller.
0: And we'll take our next question from the line of Brian Badel with Deutsche Bank. Please go ahead.
5: Great. Uh, thanks. Good morning, folks. Can you hear me? Yes, Brian. We can hear you. Uh, great. Thanks. Um, uh, just just uh, one more on on the uh, on the rate sensitive and energy revenue and fee waivers. Just um, just the cadence as we move through the year. We're um, really into the second quarter. Um, and and back a little bit to that deposit strategy with the excess deposits. Is there an ability to put a little bit more in the securities portfolio as we move into the second? Quarter, um, so what I'm trying to get at is are, are we, uh, given your full year guidance, are we at sort of stability as you see it coming into the second quarter on NIR, or is it maybe another dip down before we go up? And then similar to that on the fee waves, I think you said you know, 220 for the second quarter, but then uh, I'm not sure if I got this correct that you thought that was going to improve in the back half, um, and that was based on balances. Can you clarify that?
3: Sure. So, uh, sure. so, sure. Um, so, in 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 terms of NIR, um, if you know, we don't really give uh, you know uh, you know ultimately quarter by quarter balances, and so much of it is dependent upon um, or, or quarter by quarter projections, and so much of it is dependent upon obviously the rate curve. Uh, deposit levels and MBS prepayment and other factors, all of which are baked into our projections. And what I would say, as I just reconfirmed, is that, you know, our full year uh, projection for NIR is still the same uh, as the original guidance given, which is 11 or 12% down year on year. So that, that hasn't changed fully uh in terms of uh waivers uh so waivers are a function of two things basically uh short term rates uh, specifically 3 months and 6 months cdulls as well as repo rates uh also a function of uh money market fund balances and actually what we saw this quarter is actually both uh rates grind lower balances go higher Uh, as a result, waivers overall were a bit higher than originally anticipated at 188 million. Uh, they were, you know, that, that the total impact, however, was, you know, slightly positive to, to, uh, to revenues. Uh, and again, um, just we use the forward curve, uh, to also project, uh, waivers, uh, looking at the forward curve, also the historical relationship between rates and, and, and money market balances, et cetera uh we you know think you know we think that uh waivers the size of waivers overall will peak in the second quarter at about two hundred and twenty uh million. Uh and then um and by the way that would be probably at at the as the fees we're talking about, the gross yields are talking about probably slightly negative to revenues, uh but then we would expect uh the second half of the year to uh be more in line with the first quarter. And look, I, I always like to remind people, um, albeit it's probably not till 20, you know, 20, the latter half of 2022 or 2023, but, uh, you know, if uh, when Fed funds, uh, you know, uh, eventually uh, hit 25, you know, is when the Fed moves, uh, we will recover in excess of 50% of those waivers. And, you know, when it hits uh, 1%, it's, it's, you know, very close to 100% of those waivers.
5: Yep, no, that's that's super clear. And then the second question is on organic growth. You said that it did stick up to two percent this quarter. Maybe if you could just talk about the drivers of that. I know Todd, you mentioned um, you know, very good demand for uh for data analytics with, with the with the data vault. Um, sounds like that contract's not in that the, the big one you mentioned is not uh in, in the run rate yet. Um but maybe if you could just talk about um that momentum and the organic growth rate and the drivers
2: of that. I'm sure. So uh, thanks for the question, uh, Brian. So the first quarter, uh, we got the benefit, obviously, of a lot of activity. hard to project exactly where that activity is going to go, uh, but the guidance I think that uh, Emily provided to you um, is p- probably uh, not sustain- sustainable at, at this level. Uh, but we did get some, uh, some nice oh. new wins, which is, was re- is reflected in that. Um, you know, Pershing volumes were, were particularly high. Very good uh, flows in a number of their accounts. So we're seeing a lot of good growth uh, on uh, with uh, with existing uh, clients as well. Uh, with with uh, balances there, we do expect them, as I said, to moderate somewhat. Uh, and and I also did point out that uh, on the previous call that we had some uh, lost business in Pershing uh, uh, that'll impact us later this year. So. Pershing's got pretty strong underlying organic growth to it, but it's going to be masked a bit by both the interest rates as well as the uh, as well as that lost business that will impact in the second in the second half. But we are seeing sustained uh, momentum across just about all of our businesses, Strong pipelines, and so as we as we've taken as we've converted the pipeline to sales, we continue to uh, to build the pipeline. We have another pretty good uh, uh, quarter for, for sales. A higher wind loss uh, ratios are, are improving, and retention has continued to be uh, to be good. I mentioned um, the, the the data vaults and we had a number of clients in beta. We're now uh, assigned a very significant one, um, um, you know, and building a deeper relationship uh, with with that client. A lot of interest in our uh, in some of our analytics and our applications that we've described to you, you know, before. Uh, we're actually seeing uh, recovery in payment flows too. So Treasury Services, which is largely commercial, uh, commercial payments, and a lot of it's uh, you know, global, um, we're seeing a good, uh, a good recovery back on, on economic recovery. And we're also picking up some market share. We've got some pretty interesting opportunities there as we look forward. We're pretty excited what we might be able to do in the real-time payments space there um asset wealth management had positive uh, uh you know positive flows um we're seeing uh we're seeing meaningful improvement uh in wealth uh and we've been talking about the investments that we're making you know across the businesses both in to, to even in the core custody our, our, uh our, our middle office functions um the payment system clearing and collateral management it even it was off of an extraordinary good quarter uh last year uh, but we, we continue to pick up global assets. Um, the, the, the fact that we built up this uh, bond connect capability in, in, in uh, China is, is an exciting, innovative uh, um, uh, uh, service that we're providing to clients, and, and, and we're, we're, we're confident that that's going to continue to, continue to grow. Um, so good good underlying momentum, helped by very strong activity in the uh, in the first quarter.
5: And that's great. Color. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Bob.
0: Our next question that comes from the line of Betsy Grisek with Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead.
6: Hi. Good morning. Hi, Betsy. Good morning. Um, okay, a couple of questions, on, a little bit on the technical side, on the build-out that you're doing around the digital assets, the cryptocurrencies, and that kind of thing. Um, could you remind us the kind of pace that you're anticipating uh, being able to roll this out? And are you going to be um, phys- are you going to be custodying the physicals? Uh, just wanted to understand what the um, what how wide the aperture is on this opportunity. So,
2: okay, sure, sure, Betsy, I'll, I'll take it, Todd. Um, so, when when we talk about our digital uh, asset uh, uh, efforts. Uh, what we're talking about is uh, uh, digitizing traditional securities so that they're more easily mobilized. Um, you know, things like you could, digitize them, you could digitize a money market fund and make it an eligible asset to put into repo, uh, which couldn't which couldn't do in the past, and you can make it much much more efficient. We think there's going to be quite a bit of that activity, as, as well as uh, uh, smart contracts and 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 and. Uh, that, that might be able to do for the corporate trust and other businesses so that's one element of it the other thing that we're going to see is we think there'll be digitization of fiat currencies we're already involved in a consortium with um, with finality which is a central bank currency which could which could uh, which could trade you 24 know, 7 in digital form um, and uh, is, is really just developing regulatory approvals for it now so we do think there'll be And there already exist digital uh, currencies, uh, uh, fiat currencies, and where everything the thing that gets the hype is really around the cryptocurrencies. But we would be digitizing, excuse me, we would be uh, custodizing those as well. So we have uh, we have been working on a uh, a prototype, uh, and we expect to be um, uh, to be offering uh, capabilities across uh, all, all three of those. Uh, by the uh, by the end of the year, as we're building things out with clients that are, have shown uh, institutional interest. Um, so yes, we would actually have uh, uh, the the the, um, the wallet, if you will, or the, be the custodian for the uh, underlying uh, cryptocurrency or any one of those particular digitized assets.
6: Okay, so you would actually be custodying the physicals. You're not going to be sub that out to somebody else.
2: Uh, that is not our intent at this point.
6: And then, what's the time frame for you know getting to market? Is that a 2021 or a 22 time frame?
2: We, we expect uh, that you'll be hearing some things throughout uh, it, it, toward the end of 2021, but um, it may be a little bit earlier for some elements of it.
6: Okay, and then the other um, theme I wanted to just touch base. On was around the, um, the climate comment that you had in your prepared remarks, Todd. Um, I, I mean, part of it is asking the question: What, what can you do? Is this about your own footprint, um, or is this also about working with your clients? And, and if it's working with your clients, how how do you anticipate you will help them get more, you know, climate friendly, so to speak?
2: Yeah, so there's 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 really two elements to it, uh, Betsy. One is what we're doing as an enterprise, our own carbon footprint, for example, uh, and we, we've been uh, very uh, we've been very active. We published uh, recently in February. We published a a, a, a a considering climate at BNY Mellon report, which gave very specific examples of what we've done around carbon waste and and, and other other uh, uh, environmental related activities. And we are carbon neutral, we have been for an extended period of time, um, and uh, we've, we've been named, um, you know, as by, by uh, the CDP, uh, we're the one of five financial institutions that have been given an A rating on client, uh, climate, and we've been, uh, we're the only financial institution that have gotten that rating over the past eight years. So that's, that's what we're doing as a firm and you know, managing paper and, and, uh, and, and our carbon footprint. In terms of what we're also doing is we're providing services to clients. For example, we're, we're the largest trustee on green bonds, and we can certainly help clients establish um, uh, the trustee function that goes, that goes along with that. But in addition, in the asset servicing space, one of the things that have come out of our data and analytics capability is a very interesting application on, um, on ESG, uh, and allowing our, our clients to customize reviews of their own portfolios. Uh, and we use a crowdsourcing technique that's unique. Uh, and uh, we, we offer a cloud-based solution. We, um, uh, the, the client basically brings the license from what data providers. We're connected to 100 data providers. We've got 2.5 million securities in, in that uh, application. And, uh, and there's, a, there's kind of a, a, a constant feedback loop to the, to the um, uh, data provider, so they're constantly enhancing the, the amount of information that they might have on a particular security. So we're excited about that. We have quite a few clients on it now, and we're just contracting them as for per, per, um, permanent uh, uh, usage. Uh, and in addition to that, in our investment management space, uh, we're building uh, quite a few um, uh, ESG products, uh, and in the in the servicing space, we we you know we were just awarded a, an attractive ETF that was based around ESG. So it really goes in those two forms. Uh, one is the commercial uh, element that we can help our businesses, and number two is just doing the right thing for our own company. Okay,
6: thank you. Appreciate that, core cool.
2: Thanks, Betsy.
0: Can that- our next question comes from the line of Alex Blostein with the Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead.
7: Hey, good morning, Todd and Emily. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, maybe another question around capital. So I heard you guys uh, obviously targeting over 100% payout. Uh, that, that's something that you guys have targeted for a little while as well. Uh, can, can you help us kind of calibrate that against the significant buyback you have authorized currently, um, obviously, there could be some, you know, probably technical restrictions in terms of how much you could ultimately get done in the third quarter, given just the bottom threshold. But, you know, may, maybe help us think through that relative to your comments and willingness to kind of go below the 5.5% tier one leverage. So, just kind of trying to think through how much you could ultimately get done. Sure. Uh, so.
6: Um-
3: Ultimately, you are correct in, in uh, mentioning that we had approval. And I'll just remind folks: uh, the board approval was given in, in the fourth quarter of last year to do buybacks up to uh, 4.4 billion through the third quarter of this year. Uh, given the Fed's limitations on the buybacks actually through the, the second quarter, it's, it's probably going to be pretty unlikely that we could execute the entirety of the 4.4 billion, just literally in terms of, you know, ADV, etc. Uh, but we will do as much as, 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 you know, as, as we are allowed. Uh, and if, you know, assuming that the Fed does return to or, or implement, I should say, the SCB framework, which does allow for much more flexibility, uh, we, you know, we would intend to, um, uh, you know, certainly, uh, uh execute, you know, in excess of 100% of, of, uh, uh you know, or, or return, I should say, in excess of 100% of earnings in the third quarter. Uh, as much as we could do, and anything that we couldn't do, we would we would hope to catch up in the uh, in the fourth quarter in that uh, in that program.
7: Got it. That's helpful. Um, and then maybe we could unpack some of the NIR dynamics um, a little bit more. So two questions there. I guess one, um, deposit costs, uh, I think we are roughly flattish, I guess sequentially, just can you know in terms of what you guys are charging. Um is there room for that to grind a little bit lower as you're trying to optimize the balance sheet or there's not a whole lot you guys could do in terms of pushing pricing on deposits to clients? And then, um, I wanted to clarify your comments around premium amortization. I don't know if you, if I missed it, but what, what was it in the quarter and your full year NIR guidance? What does it assume for premium AM uh, for the rest of the year?
3: Sure. So, um, just, just talking about first, uh, uh, first deposits. Um, you are, you know, right that the deposit rates are relatively flat. And remember, that's an average across, you know, non-US dollar as well as US dollar. We are charging, uh, in, for example, euros and, and for Japanese yen. We're not, of course, charging for the U.S., you know, in the U.S. Uh, I mean, look, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is the trough, but this is probably pretty much close to, um, you know, close to, uh, you know, ultimately, um, you know, I guess the rate that we would get to, uh, of course, if rates actually went negative in the U.S., we, we, we could, uh, start charging for deposits. We, you know, certainly don't feel or haven't felt that that is, that is necessary. And ironically, if you, you know, if you do start charging for deposits, then, you know, you start to, you know, earn, you know, earn money, uh, you know, earn more in, 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 uh, in NIR. So, uh, but that isn't the intention at the moment.
2: In terms yeah, of your sex- – let, let me just add something to that. So I, sure. I think in, you, in the Fed guidance, Alex, that, um, that they yeah. they've provided, they, they really have talked about uh, being means for them to um, uh, uh, limit any possibility of negative rates for any sustainable time. And we've seen repo rates go negative a little, a, a little bit. So we, we do think that there are probably policy actions if that were to dip down. But as we go through the as, – as we scrub through the nature of the deposits that we've gotten, and obviously there's very limited value to them now, we've got a whole capital against them uh, now. Uh, we, are, we are grinding them down, but there's not a whole lot more to grind down.
3: Yep, and then a second me second oh, sure. On the on the um, NBS prepayment speeds, just uh, in our NIR projections, we've already taken in, into account, you know, a uh, a trajectory of you know NBS pre prepayment slowing down just uh, based upon the the rise in, in, in rates. Uh, uh, so just to think about it in terms of sizing, we would expect the NBS prepayment speeds to slow down by about probably 15 to 20 percent by year end.
4: Great.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex.
0: Our next question comes from the line of Mike Mayo with Wells Fargo Securities. Please go ahead.
8: Uh, hi. Um, you had some good uh, fee growth in servicing, but you talked about how to do the volumes that should moderate. Is that kind of expectations around purging and what are you seeing, purging or retail
2: behavior? You have, you have a window into that world, I think. Yeah, Mike, I'll take that. So it's a, um, it's a, I think it's a combination of things. So we, we've we we've we've seen a lot of activity, um, you know, in the, in the in the trading space. We've seen a, uh, uh, we have seen retail activity that was very high, uh, as you know. Um, and Pershing Pershing does see some of that, but it's been it, it, but it's been in the institutional side as well as the retail side. Uh, and we would expect that to subside somewhat in the, from the from the elevated levels that we saw in the in the in the first quarter. What was interesting is the institutional business was probably a little more active in March, and the retail business was probably a little more active in January and February.
8: Okay, so you're you're seeing a, a slowdown in retail trading as the quarter went on. I mean, as people return back to work, do you think
2: they they trade less or anything related to that? Do you think their supervisors keep an eye on what they're doing at their desks a little bit more? I'm not. I'm not sure I, I read that. Into it, but, but um, I, I, you know, it, it's very hard to say, Mike, because what you got to remember is there is a massive amount of cash sloshing around the system, and it's got to go somewhere. Um, you know, one of the things that I pointed out, the savings rate doubled the, the, the national average. We've got 15 percent. Households are holding 15 percent of GDP in cash. They're either going to spend it, investment, invest it, or just let it let it lose value sitting sitting in cash. So, um, our guess is that we're probably going to see lower activity. But it's you know it, my guess is as good as yours.
8: Okay, and then just one last question on the, uh, the fee waivers. I mean, your customers must love you. Um, I mean, can this is <laughs> I mean this is you know 220 million fee waivers in the second quarter coming up i mean um hopefully you're building some long-term goodwill but shareholders don't benefit from that so i mean you said you're not going to charge for deposits or i mean what any other options there or just you just have to eat it and hope you get long-term goodwill sure well
2: let me start emily and you can and and you can you can follow up on it so you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the excess balances is ending up in cash or even ending up in money market funds. So we we consider that we continue to see this cash, uh, this cash build. So even though it's 220 million dollars of fee waivers, it's also, a, a lot of that's just driven by excess balances that we don't think are going to be there. Um, when when uh, when interest rates uh, when interest rates recover just like we think uh, you know the, the, uh, the excess reserves in the, in the system uh, will obviously con- will obviously con- contract that being said uh, we do think there it provides a lot of upside when the market turns around which we which we've uh, which we reflected the last time we went uh, we went through this cycle and we can earn a little bit on it on it still and, and a little bit of good news is that the Fed speak recently has been pointing to um, you know the possibility to firm things up on the short end of the curve. And we've actually seen the forward rates kind of improve a little bit uh, a little bit recently. So we're um, we're making the assumption that using the uh, the forward curve from a few days ago when we gave that guidance, that um, uh, fee waivers will be uh, acted by like they did um, during the uh, during the, the uh, uh, first quarter. You know, that being said, it's a, it, is a significant, um, it is a significant hit to earnings. We think we'll recover it. Uh, we still ran a 29% operating margin even with that environment. And the other thing that we've done is between NIR and fee waivers, we think we are now um, at, at or very close to the trough. I mean, it could obviously worsen if interest rates even got a little bit, a little bit lower. Uh, but we think we are close to, close to the trough. And so the business model is now going to start to grow, you know, to grow off of this level. Great, thank you.
3: The thank you. only thing I just might, the only thing I just yeah. might add to that is just, just remember that a, a large portion of those waivers are, are really just funds that we distribute. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's we're the kind of the recipient of, you know, just lower, you know, lower fees uh, versus competitive waivers that that we're actually offering in uh, in asset management.
8: Great. Thank you for that.
3: And our
0: next question that comes from the line of Ken in with Jeffries, please go ahead.
9: Uh, thanks. Good morning. Uh, just had a follow-up on the asset services fee line. It was nice to see the 5% improvement sequentially, and I just wondered. You know, uh, last quarter you had mentioned some of the bulkier repricing and kind of one time things. This quarter you mentioned that there's a little bit of, you know, elevated activity. Just wondering from like a, an outlook perspective, um, anything y- y- we should know just about um, kind of a, you know, the, the trajectory of, of onboarding new wins and, um, and are we kind of do we have a clear line of sight on, on any, you know, expected meaningful repricing um, this year? Thanks.
3: Emily, you want to take it? Sure. So um yeah, you know we did see a, a, a nice uptick in terms of asset uh, asset servicing fees. They were up five uh, percent actually sequentially. Um and, and just, you know, 50% of that is due to, um, asset, you know, uh, you know, asset based level, asset levels. And the remaining, you know, 50%, uh, is, is, you know, is based on transaction volumes and transaction volumes across asset servicing. All of our businesses and asset servicing was, was up significantly, uh, double digits, uh, and, and in some cases, uh, uh, quarter on quarter. Uh, as Todd alluded to, we do expect that volume to moderate a bit, uh, in the second half you know having said that uh you know uh, we also feel that there's very strong fundamentals across the business uh, our our pipeline is strong the average size deals in the pipeline are, are are bigger uh retention stats are very strong and we're you know also making significant investments you know in the business that that, that are resonating with with clients uh in terms of the repricing, um, uh, you know, there's nothing really structural that, that we observe. Uh, repricing, uh, the repricing that we did uh, experience last, last quarter that was a bit lumpy was really uh, totally uh, tied to just a few large clients that happened to be going RFP at the same, you know, at the same time. Uh, this, you know, it's always been a pretty modest headwind for the bill, you know, for the business that we've uh, been able to uh, offset with uh, new business retention, uh, you know, growth with our existing clients, and 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 further efficiency.
9: Got it. Thanks for that, Emily. And then just one more balance sheet question. In terms of um, um, Fed accommodation, the incremental deposits that flowed in, and, and certainly seem to land on your balance sheet. How are you just? Anticipating changes as you as we go forward with potential ends to QE and uh, you know and how how do you think your balance sheet would act versus the more more traditional um, regional banks in terms of the you know, retention of the deposits that have flowed in? Thank you. Sure.
3: Sure. Um, so. Ultimately, you know, we, we, you know, we, we think when, you know, we, we basically, as, as the Fed increases reserves, we think roughly about 2% or so, you know, ends up on our, you know, on our balance sheet. It's, you know, it's actually hard, you know, hard to tell and depends very much on the, on the economic backdrop. Uh, as I did mention, you know, we do think a a large portion of the deposits, which, uh, um, you know, that we, that we've seen in the growth in those deposits, especially in the last two quarters is excess, so non-operating. Uh, and we do think that that, you know, would recede pretty quickly, uh, you know, when, when interest rates start to normalize and monetary policy starts to normalize. I don't know, Todd, if you have anything to add to that.
2: Yeah. I think if, if you go back to, uh, you know, pre-the the COVID event, which really led to a spike, we've seen something close to $100 billion of balance increases. Um, some of that was intentional as we built relationships and, and comes naturally with the growth in our businesses. But a, a significant amount of that was, uh, was what we call – we fit into that excess um, definition – so we'd, we'd imagine uh, probably uh, somewhere between 25 to $50 billion of that $100 billion increase would roll off. Got it. Okay. Thank you.
8: Thanks, Ken.
0: Our next question comes from the line of Jim Mitchell from Seaport Global Security. Please go ahead.
9: Hey, good morning. Maybe just uh, if I – Think about your guidance on NII. It does seem like you're, the implication is that NII is sort of stabilizing here, and I assume you know that that implies sort of securities yields are going to kind of hold in at current levels. Um, so if we kind of assume a static balance sheet going forward, and I know that's that's not necessarily the right way to think about it, but if we assume you know try to isolate. Um, what could be the inflection point? You know, what level of rates, uh, I mean, I think you've indicated the two to five year is important. You're not going to go further out than that. You know, we've had the
7: five-year now at 83 basis points moving higher. Do we need to see
2: that translate into the two to three year? I mean, what level of rate structure should we start to see maybe yields going the other way? Why don't I start, Emily, and then you you can add. So, I think sure. there are really two key elements to it, um, Jim. Well, number one is the short end of the curve. So we've got a significant number of assets that are pricing off of um, off of uh, LIBOR or short you know, short-term indices. And once again, this quarter we saw, for example, one-month LIBOR was down three basis points from its average in the, in the fourth quarter, and 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 two basis points for three-month LIBOR. So. We got a, you know, that 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 offset the benefit of the of the move on the longer part of the curve, uh, but the steepening out to five years, so you know, we keep a we keep a duration of around two and a half years. So that that would mean there's going to be significant assets out there that roll off and get reinvestment is is helpful and it will and it will slowly come into it, but it's basically been offset. That that benefit has been offset by what we saw on the short end of the curve.
4: No, it makes sense. Um, I was just trying to think
2: through, you know, assuming short rates are pretty stable from here, what kind of gets, what what at the longer end really starts to help you. Yeah, I mean, you know, five and ten years because what that does is it extends the duration of the um, of the mortgage-backed securities, so their yields pick up because the amortization of premium declines. Uh, as stuff come, and we're constantly reinvesting as stuff and stuff gets reinvested to maintain the duration that currently exists in the portfolio, it would go into higher levels. so this it would be helpful here.
3: And we uh, and and Jen we did disclosed in the queue just some sensitivities that might be helpful as well for you to sure. guide that
2: yeah i I got it. I just uh, was trying to get a sense of what level of rates in the sh- in the middle of the curve would be helpful, but we can always talk about that offline. thanks. Thanks, Jim.
0: And our next question that comes from the line of Stephen Chubak from Wolf Research. Please go ahead.
8: Hey, good morning. Uh, this is Michael, and I'm on for Stephen. I'm just following up on, on the NII guide, and he gave some detail around where you're deploying some of that excess liquidity from here, and I appreciate the call around premium M as well. Maybe you could just provide some color around how much of that deployment is contemplated in the NII guide for the securities portfolio. Sure. Uh, so,
3: um, sure. So, um, I mean, our securities portfolio is is basically flat to uh, you know flat to last quarter, and uh, we are marginally increasing our non-HQLA within the quarter. Uh but uh you know when we when I talked about the NIR, NIR guidance for the full year still being about eleven to twelve percent, you know, we're we're you know the the rate curve you know it's just based on the forward curve, uh deposits basically remaining pretty much where they are, if not coming down a bit. Uh and um uh you know MBS prepayment speeds going down. So uh those are the key assumptions.
8: Thank you for taking my question. Thanks, Stephen.
0: Our next question that comes from the line of Gerard Cassidy with RBC. Please go ahead.
10: Good morning, Todd. Good morning, Emily.
0: Good
3: morning, Todd,
10: Gerard. Todd, can you frame out for us when you think about you know, your years at Bank of New York, the number of new products that Bank of New York has introduced over the years? I think of like custody of uh, non-traditional assets uh, as, as one. When you think about the opportunities for this digital digitalization and the cryptocurrencies that you guys are working on that you've already talked about, how big can this be? And again, comparing it to other new ventures that you've been involved with over the years at Bank of New York, if you could compare that.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's early to tell. I mean, if you, if you think of, you know, all the noise that Bitcoin got, so it's, it's still only about 10% of gold, and gold as a customized asset is not that important, frankly, right? So, right. Um, so, so it, it, you know, it's getting, uh, it's getting a lot of hype. I do think decentralized finance is coming. I do think fintechs are going to be important players, and I do think that, that we, are, we can position ourselves well and work with fintechs. Um, uh, to, you know to, to, to build opportunities. I think you're going to see it in payments. Uh, I think you're going to see it uh, you are going to see it in custody. It's hard for me to say just how big of an opportunity that is at, th- at this point. Um, you know they're, 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 it, it will grow. I think the more important thing is that we we need to give investors choice. and so if they do want to, if they do want to mobilize assets faster, we need to be able to help them to do that. If they do want to be able to hold some non-traditional assets, just as they went into alternatives and other things, we need to be able to help them to do that, and we, in, in a way that is, is, is it eliminates a lot of the counterparty risk that currently exists, which is high, uh, and also enables them to get reporting on a consolidated basis and valuations and so forth, which is also critically uh, critically important. Uh, and so there are a number of ETFs uh, coming out uh, that are that are uh, crypto related. Um, there is, you know, there's obviously good underlying growth on a very on a very small base. Uh, we think it's we think it's an important part of the full product capability. How big it ultimately comes, I think it becomes a really, little. It's it's just a little early for for me to really speculate.
10: I see. Okay, thank you. And um, the second, yeah,
2: you I- guys put talk- Oh, go
10: ahead, Emily.
3: I was just going to add one little thing, which is, you know, it, it's as much about retention as it also is about new business. Our, you know, our clients are demanding, you know, an integrated capabilities across digital assets as well as traditional uh, traditional securities and currencies.
10: Got it. Thank you. Um, you guys have uh, always told us, and you talked about it again today, the leverage ratio is the binding constraint and not the CET1 ratio. You pointed out, Emily, that it may dip down below 5.5%, but you know, still well above the regulatory minimums. So we understand that at what point would the leverage ratio actually come into play where you, you would have to back away from your buybacks, even though you have the CET one ratio, not a problem, but when, at what, at what point do you say we, we've got to slow it down because the leverage ratio is falling too far down. And then as part of that, is the leverage ratio really linked to the QE, meaning the deposit growth? And should we get a tapering, then we should get some relief, you know, on your balance sheet growth, which maybe would help the leverage ratio as well.
2: So yeah, let, let me let me start, Emily, and then and then you you can add. If you think about it, we've put a buffer on the leverage ratio for business as usual. You know, this, now, this isn't for stress testing, but for business as usual. And that buffer really reflects the potential for a spike in interest, excuse me, a spike in deposits uh, or, or a, 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 a decline due to in, in other comprehensive in, income based on the mark-to-market and the securities portfolio. And so, frankly, Gerard, we've seen the spike. In, in deposits and could it go up a, a little bit higher yeah it, it, it may um, but our view now is part of the reason for the buffer has has, has already taken place uh, and as I indicated on one of the earlier questions we probably when things start to normalize we probably have 50 billion dollars of, of runoff in deposits so that's an enormous amount uh, an enormous impact uh, on that ratio uh, and also the the Coverage from the OCI does has to be that high. So, given the fact that that we've already made this spike, it makes sense for us to go ahead and dip into our buffers. And, and and Emily said, you know, going to a five percent probably is not an unreasonable thing in this environment. If we were in a if we were in an environment where we were a year ago, I'm not sure I would say that.
3: The only thing I I might add is just. Um, I mean, even if we were, you know, go, you know, we, like as Todd just said, we'd be comfortable going towards five percent. But I mean, even there, uh, um, you know, if you're still, you know, you would need a considerable increase in deposits, uh, you know, there, you know, from from where we are today. We've got plenty very, of room.
2: Very good. Thank you. Thanks, you,
0: And as a reminder, it is Star One if you would like to ask a question. And our next question comes from the line of Rob Wildhack from Autonomous Research. Please go ahead.
8: Good morning, guys. Um, If we could go back to the uh, cryptocurrency and digital asset space for a second, you're clearly taking a few steps forward there with the announcements you made this quarter. Is is that because you think we've
2: hit – some kind of inflection point in that part of the market, or is it just more of a natural evolution of your service? Uh, yeah, um, uh, Rob, I would say it's more of a natural evolution. We're having, we're having uh, deep discussions working with clients, uh, the institutional side. And we, and we started to see this toward the end of last year and the beginning of this year, that in, the institutional side was getting more and more interested in, uh, uh, in, in digital assets. Um, and so we started working with them for uh, for solutions across uh, you know a broad part of our uh, of, of our business. Okay, thanks. Okay, Rob, thank you.
0: And our final question comes from the line of Brian Kleinhansel with KBW. Please go ahead.
5: Yeah, thanks. Uh, two questions here. One on the asset servicing here, um, takes the update on how the underlying pricing is with 50% for asset levels and 50% for transaction volumes. Um, where is, do you want to take those percentages, though, longer term? Is that the mix that you're at, and this would be steady state from here, or are you trying to get more transaction volume based, just as we think how pricing trends evolve here? Do you
3: want me to take that, Todd? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, the 50-50 split is just the nature of the beast and the nature of the business. So it's not like we are are trying to move that in any direction. And for pretty much, you know, years, that's just really the the, the dynamics of how we're priced in asset servicing. About, about you know, 50% uh, of, of the revenue stream is uh, based on asset levels, and about 50% or so is based on transaction costs. So
0: it's pretty much the norm.
5: Okay. The second question, I mean, you looked at issuer services and treasury services um, and the revenue drivers both being impacted by interest rates above and beyond the money market fee waivers. Is there any way to um, allocate what part of those revenues are kind of driven by interest rates as we think about asset sensitivity on a go-forward basis? Um,
2: Sure. So both of those businesses are are significant deposit-taking businesses, or either either we – you know or either we take them in the on balance sheet or off balance sheet through uh sweeps into into money market funds uh and uh and so the the, the interest rate impact it, it's a it's a meaningful contribution uh, to both to, to both of them i don't think we've break we've broken out you know exactly what the what the split is but it is, it's a um and, and it's a meaningful contribution to the um, obviously to the operating margins because there's no expense associated with the um with the with the uh, the NIR um, what we've seen in treasury services a, is an intentional uh, build in deposits over the past year as we've built out those relationships and it's very much related to the activity in the accounts too because there needs, needs to be uh, cash in accounts to make to make payments and there's some frictional cash that 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 tends to come uh, tends to come with that um, money market fee waivers a little less important there but if you think about the corporate trust business. What issuers will do is they'll, they'll they'll put cash a day or two in advance of payments that need to be made on on on, uh, on issues uh, that were were the, were the trustee and the paying agent, and uh, and and typically that's where, that's value that um, where we get a little of that value or we sweep it into a money market fund, um, and so that's a meaningful contributor uh, to that business, and and uh, and and that's where they're that there, we're, we're now seeing the kind of the late stages impact of fee waivers, and that's why the issuer services business was down um, down sequentially and year over year. Yep. Thanks. But we don't break out the very specific numbers, Brian. Okay, thank you for that. the um, questions.
3: Yep.
2: Operator, go ahead.
3: That
0: that does conclude our question and answer session for today. I would now like to hand the call back over to Todd with any additional or closing remarks.
2: Uh, No, no thanks. Thanks for all of your interest. And, of course, any follow-up questions, uh, you may reach out to uh, Magda and our investor relations team uh, and look forward to talking to you all soon. Take care.
0: Thank you. Thank you. This does conclude today's conference and webcast. A replay of this conference call and webcast will be available on the BNY Mellon Investor Relations website at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time today. Have a great day.